0: Scripture reading this morning is taken from the 14th chapter of Exodus and uh, reading from the English Standard Version. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Heroroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea by pi and In front of Baal Zephon, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by strong east wind all night, and made the and made the sea land sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Before we dive into this text and continue through the book of Exodus, I was actually just reflecting this morning, and I don't know that we've talked about this, so this is not the official start of the sermon, but I so appreciate the work of our liturgists in reading these kind of long readings that we have from the Old Testament, and I, I know that sometimes that's an adjustment for some of us who prefer like one and two verse Bible readings, but um, two things to think about. One is that it is often stretching to sit and read a chapter or more of scripture all at once. And it is for me, just as much as any of you, it's not like just because I'm a pastor, suddenly my attention span isn't affected by the modern age. But the great danger we have is that we hear things like, oh, that's hard, and we conclude that we shouldn't do it. And that is actually one of the great mistakes of modernity. In fact, that's a way that we need to be stretched and exercise ourselves, and I was struck by that, um... Over the last few weeks, there's been a lot of reports coming out as China has cracked down on a group of Christian churches. And I was really struck by this testimony of this believer there who talked about how um, he was in prison on Sunday and his guard gave him grief that, um, you know, he'd have to just have his worship service in his cell. And so he said, well, so I did. And he said that I proceeded to sing some hymns and then recite parts of the Heidelberg Catechism and Westminster Confession and the Book of Philippians. And to be clear, by recite, he means from memory, right? Um, out loud. That was his worship service. And then he said that I gave thanks this a- that afternoon because some brothers and sisters were arrested and one of them had a Bible. And so we spent the afternoon reading the book of Acts to each other and just reflecting on that kind of testimony and on the power of that. Um, I was just like, we need to grow more and more to really just love God's word in that way. With that said, let's pray and let's look at our text for this morning. Father, I give you thanks for your word and for the great deliverance that you work for us. I pray that you would impress it on our hearts and give us joy in it. That you would be with all of us sinners as we hear it proclaimed. And be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So yes, before Christmas and all of that, we were preaching through the book of Exodus. But so that everyone's on the same page, here's where we are. Okay? So Exodus. Israel is in prison and slavery in egypt for 400 years it's brutal slavery and then god raises up moses as their deliverer and a bunch of decades pass as he's prepared and has these things that gets him ready but then finally he comes to pharaoh and demands that israel be set free and pharaoh refuses and god sends this series of plagues against egypt And finally, after the 10th plague and the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh is humbled to the point where he lets Israel go, and they go out into the wilderness then, the entire nation of them. God leads them in a pillar of smoke and fire. But as he leads them, it's not straight to the promised land. It's down into the desert, and that's where our story picks up this morning. So let's just dive into it here. So as it starts, we're not sure exactly how long Israel's in the desert, but it's not long, right? It's a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. But God starts by giving Moses this instruction. He says, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahirath between Migdal and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Now where those locations are nobody is actually sure right because this was more than three thousand years ago But what's clear is two things one israel God's been leading them and he's actually having them backtrack and he's backtracking them to this point where their back is to the sea And then the reason he's doing that we're told is that god is laying a trap of sorts for pharaoh We're told that this is what happens after israel leaves when the king of egypt was told that the people had fled pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said what have we done we've let the israelites go and have lost their service which is to say when he releases them what he's seeing is this mighty work of god and that they're going to be destroyed if they try to keep the israelites and now he's like this is really going to be bad for our economy (laughs) so what we got to do something about this um and god knows that Pharaoh's having second thoughts so we're told by god he says pharaoh will think "...the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them." So Pharaoh will see Israel, and they're out there, and they're trapped, and they don't seem to know where they're going, and he will ride out with his army after them. Which, just to be clear, is because Israel is trapped. That's the flip side of this, right? God is putting them in a position where they don't have any human way of escape. Pharaoh is going to cut them off to the west and they're going to have the ocean to the east And and it's the ocean, right? I think when we picture like this parting of the red sea and stuff We picture like the rock river parting, right? And that is not the situation even if it's at the narrowest part, right? It's like between between like 10 and 15 miles of water that you know that that is at their backs They're not going to swim this thing And then god reveals why he says, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And so the Israelites did this. So God's setting this up so that he can show forth his glory and his power in a situation where Israel would be helpless. But again, Israel is pretty helpless. We see Pharaoh marshal his armies. It says that he had his chariots made ready, And he took his army with him, 600 of the best chariots, along with the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over them. Chariots in this day are like tanks, basically, right? They're these expensive things that are armored, and you'd ride out, and they're worth like dozens and dozens of soldiers, each one. And Pharaoh has 600 like chosen chariots, plus presumably thousands of others, and Israel has zero of them. And then along with that, Pharaoh marshals the rest of the military the egyptians all pharaoh's horses and chariots horsemen and troops pursued the israelites and overtook them as they camped near the sea and israel's confronted by that army in the next verse it says as pharaoh approached the israelites looked up and there were the egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and cried out to the lord so just have that picture in your head right you're camping here in the desert with You know, you're this israelite and you look out and you see stretching across the horizon the whole army Of egypt the greatest superpower in the world and the chariots coming forward and the flashing sun On their shields and the dust that's kicked up behind them And I mean you've got some people who can fight right but they're like they were making bricks up until a couple of weeks ago I mean, they're they're not trained soldiers. They don't have armor. They don't have chariots it's got to feel, you know, like you've got a knife, you know, and this, this other guy has an assault rifle or something, and you're, you're, you're confronting him. And so, they're freaked out. They turn on Moses. It says, starting in 11, that they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now it is easy for us to look down on that response, right? Because after all, literally like days or weeks before God was bringing these supernatural plagues on Egypt, right, to work their deliverance, his presence was visibly with them right now in this pillar of smoke and fire that had been leading them. But we also shouldn't be so quick to judge Because while it might be wrong, I also totally understand how the Israelites are feeling in this moment. They are at the situation where they're like, here comes this army, and there is no human way that we can stop them. We are at the end of ourselves, and um, it is totally reasonable in that situation for them to just say, man, we are doomed. Which already gives us something to recognize about ourselves and our lives. This is not. The only time that god works this way it is not the only time God often brings us to the end of ourselves There is this idea we have that is god if god's working Then things are going to be smooth sailing And nothing very hard will ever happen and no real adversity will come And you can see that in the way we talk when people say man. I god is really moving god is really at work what they really mean is Things are going great (laughs) that that's often what we end up meaning by that But in scripture, that's not how it works God is at work in all situations not just the easy ones His control extends over all things This story makes clear that israel's helpless situation and pharaoh's approaching army are all a part of this plan that god Has he hardens pharaoh's hearts? And arranges circumstances so that Egypt feels confident of victory. And places Israel in this place that they can't escape from. God moves that way in our lives as well. We've said before, people people will tell you God won't give you more than you can handle. But that's not what the Bible says. He absolutely at times gives us more than we can handle on our own. And that's what he's doing here. He's putting his people in this position where there is no way... In themselves that they're going to win He's bringing them to the end of themselves Why? Let's keep reading the story Israel complains against moses And then look at moses's response and i'm going to use the esv translation here because it highlights this better But it says moses said to the people fear not Stand firm and see the salvation of the lord, which he will work for you today For the Egyptians who you see, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And I use that translation because it highlights that really this verse is a set of commands. That's the backbone of it. And the commands are fear not, stand, see, and be silent. So Israel is not to be afraid, by which he probably means don't try to flee. Instead they're to stand, and to watch, and to be silent. Those are commands... we're highlighting them because those are kind of commands to do nothing right (laughs) they are commands for israel not to fight not to take care of things but simply to be still and see what god is going to do and the reason is that god is going to do something israel's hope is not that god's giving them something they can handle their hope is that god's going to come and fight for them and that's what happens so keep going Israel's up at the edge of the red sea and then god commands moses and he says raise your staff And stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters So that the israelites can go through the sea on dry ground Which I love because it's so matter of fact and also so impossible, right? Just raise your staff and divide the waters god says to moses and he's got to be thinking like Okay. Yeah, let's let's do this But he obeys and then verse 21 Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. And the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. This is the moment, right? You're all picturing some movie scene in your head of the waters parting and Israel passing through. It's so iconic that maybe we should actually just back up and talk about it for a minute, because it's one of those things that often, I think, if you poke around on the internet or watch the History Channel, you hear people love to talk about this event and explain this event, how this is not really a miracle or whatever. And I don't usually go down those rabbit trails, but I thought maybe it would be worthwhile. Let's talk about that for just a moment this morning, all right? Um, So there's a lot of theories that get circulated because people get paid to come up with them. But the two main ones that, like scholars, will circulate one is that actually israel isn 't crossing the Red Sea at all, and it 's crossing one of these shallow reed lined lakes to the north, um, which would make it a lot less impressive that Israel crosses this thing, but it relies on a bunch of problems i 'm um, not going to go into all the details; it assumes that the name that yamsuf which is what this thing is called isn't about the red sea even though all the other places it's used in the old testament that's what it's talking about and um, it doesn't fit with any of the details of this text but anyway so that one doesn't make sense and then there's another theory which is maybe more interesting um, there's this point in the red sea near where israel might have crossed where there are coral reefs under the surface of the ocean and so You know, they'll say like if you were at that point and the wind blew for like more than 70 miles an hour Right all night long it might displace the water back and then you could walk across on the coral reef and cross to the other side Um And maybe and the conclusion that they seem to share is like well, so there's the explanation and so god didn't do it and that story is actually More interesting because on the one hand that could actually be true, right? Like god does bring this wind that blows all night that blows the waters back and It could very well be that israel was crossing on that place But the conclusion that people draw is is just not the case. It just doesn't follow from that And here's the issue. Here's what we need to recognize when we hear a lot of those things in our world We divide everything into the natural and the supernatural, right? That's how people think there's natural stuff and that's like science and normal and god's not really involved with that And then there's supernatural stuff and that's the stuff that god does and it has no explanation outside of that The bible does not actually view the world that way Um, It does not make that distinction between the natural and supernatural Um, In fact, the word miracle, right, which is what people debate about is not found in the bible It talks about god's mighty works of power and it talks about his signs But some of those things are what we would call supernatural and some of those things are what we would call natural Instead in the bible. Here's how it works in the scripture. There is providence All right Providence is the word that christians use for god's control of everything God is in control of everything that happens in the world um not that he directly causes it all right things act on each other and we make choices but god is in control of every event that happens in the world and we could in providence distinguish between what we could call ordinary providence and extraordinary providence which is to say there are times that god's control runs in the normal ways we expect and then there are times when he seems to move in really remarkable ways but There is not a distinction between God being in control, right? So like in ordinary providence, we get fed because God sends the rain and it waters the ground and crops grow and we eat them, right? In Exodus 16, in a couple chapters, we're going to read the story where God sends manna from heaven to feed Israel in the desert. And that's extraordinary providence, but it's not as if God isn't feeding us both ways. We owe thanks to god for food whether it comes from the field or whether it comes as bread from heaven And so our response to that kind of thing right about hurricane force winds and coral reefs is to say Maybe that's true And maybe it isn't maybe it's true that israel just happened to be at the exact place um, And egypt was just at the right place and this hurricane swept up at just the right time and the ocean was blown back such that israel could cross and then that the timing was just right so that then as egypt was crossing it comes crashing back like that could be the case but that does not mean that god's not the one bringing the israelites across the red sea right or maybe that's not the case either like that's not conclusive but the idea that god isn't involved just doesn't work all right either way this is a great working of his providence And that idea is really important for us to recognize, too. It's not just about people on the History Channel raising questions. Because we are often in danger of narrowing it down so that we only see God working in kind of miraculous or supernatural events, too. It's easy for us to think that God only is at work in a kind of extraordinary times. Um, I've heard preachers tell the story of a really... Pious guy who was in the middle of a flood and he goes up on the roof Right and the water's raising and he prays and starts praying that god would deliver him and he's down on his knees praying And there's this guy who comes up in a boat and says here come you know get in my boat and i can rescue you and the guy's like no like the lord's gonna deliver me and he keeps praying and you know an hour or two later the water's rising and this helicopter you know comes over and hovers and you know and offers to save him and the guy's like no like the lord's gonna deliver me and he the water's rising and he's starting to get nervous and he keeps praying and you know and saying god why aren't you saving me and finally in exasperation you know the voice from heaven sounds and says i sent you a boat and a helicopter <laughs> What more do you want? We can laugh at that, but we're all often in danger of thinking that way. I mean, I can be struggling with something or having some hard thing in life, and I'm like, God, you know, why don't you fix this? Why don't you help me? And, you know, a friend drops by to see how I'm doing, or I get offered some extra, you know, hours to to pick up some extra money, or um, there's a book I'm reading or a song on the radio that really blesses my heart. And I somehow miss that those are all God answering that prayer Those are all ways that he is seeking to encourage and help me. He's at work in all of that But with that said back to the story God parts the red sea and israel crosses and the egyptians decide to chase them which full credit here like As much as the egyptians are the bad guys in this story You got to respect them going into the ocean right with the wall of water, you know I mean behind them, but it says the egyptians pursued them and all pharaoh's horses and chariots followed them into the sea So they're riding in after israel But god stops them Uh, In verse 24 during the last watch of the night The lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the egyptian army and threw it into confusion he jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. There's actually some irony there. These chariots, right, which are so big and scary. Apparently, they're not very good at driving across muddy seabeds. <laughs> so they, you know, they the wheels jam. And then God throws them into chaos. Communication breaks down. People start to panic. And again notice that's a part of god's providence just like parting the waters And then in verse 26 The lord said to moses stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the egyptians And their chariots and horsemen So moses raises his hand over the waters And then moses stretched out his hand and at daybreak the sea went back to its place The egyptians were fleeing toward it and the lord swept them into the sea The waters flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. Egypt's entire army is annihilated. Miles of water rush back into place, and not one of them is left alive. They were dealt, you know, the greatest, like, military in the world was dealt this defeat you couldn't imagine, right? For generations after this. Egypt has to be crippled with no army and no pharaoh and none of the pride and glory it had built for itself. If you remember, we said that God often brings us to the end of ourselves, and we asked why. And in just a minute, we're going to give two specific answers, but this is actually the general answer, because often the reason we're brought to the end of ourselves is because God wants to teach us that salvation rests on him alone. Salvation rests on God alone. Everything about this story is meant to highlight that God alone is winning the victory. Israel's job is to stand and watch and then take a walk and then stand and watch some more. I mean, even Moses, right? (laughs) You know, who we picture is so miraculous. Like, his his additional task is to, like, raise his hand a couple of times. Um, It's God who comes and brings the waters apart, and brings them crashing down. It's important for us to recognize that this story is meant to make a point beyond itself. It's not just saying to the Israelites that in this instance I defeated Egypt, but in scripture, this becomes a pattern, a type of the way that God's salvation works. God defeats our enemies by his powerful hand, and he does it without our help, And he does it completely, just as happened here with Egypt. Pharaoh and Egypt in scripture come to stand in for the dark powers of this world and the darkness of our sin and the dark power of Satan. We don't have time to trace all of the threads, but just let me show you two kind of pictures of that that echo in many ways this story. The first is in the transfiguration. It's this event in the gospels where jesus goes up on the mountain and sudden with some of his disciples And he starts to shine with this divine glory And then if you pick it up in luke 9, it says two men moses and elijah Appeared in glorious splendor talking with jesus. They spoke about his departure Which he was about to bring to fulfillment at jerusalem So moses and elijah first both show up and that's because they're both those types those those patterns beforehand of jesus moses, is, um elijah is too. That's another sermon And it says they talk about his departure and that might actually seem like a strange word He's you know, he's preparing to go to jerusalem for his death and resurrection um So the greek word departure is exodos, Um, which I probably don't need to translate for you, right? That's what I mean That's where we get the name of the book exodus is because this is called the exodos. um it Is um, and you could in a real way It's that jesus sits down with moses and elijah To talk about his exodus which he's going to bring to fulfillment in jerusalem, right? He's doing this same thing in his death and resurrection And what's the kind of thing that he's doing? Well, look at the language for example of john 12 Jesus is preparing to go to jerusalem and he's preaching a sermon about his death Um, God audibly speaks to the crowd and then after that jesus announces this stuff about what's going to happen He says now is the time for the judgment on this world Now the prince of this world will be driven out and I when I am lifted up from earth will draw all people To myself again, you see that same pattern god is on the one hand defeating the prince of this world Right and the, the you know, I mean that's the kind of language you get for pharaoh, right the king of egypt the prince of egypt That God is coming to bring judgment and he's coming to bring deliverance, to draw people, all kinds of people from every tribe and nation and tongue to himself. That that's what he's coming to accomplish in his death and resurrection. That same sort of deliverance and defeat that we see in the exodus. And that means that this story we read this morning should remind us of something fundamental about our lives as Christians. That we are in the same sort of story, where God is accomplishing our salvation by his power alone. What Israel is meant to learn in this text is that their rescue, their salvation, does not depend on them. It is not their strength, it's not their power, it's not their ability to defeat their enemies that makes a difference. It's not even their ability to follow god. I don't know if you picked that up, but, right? This happens in the midst of israel complaining to moses saying what are you doing? Like how could you know? I mean, it's not even their moral perfection That's the ground of it They are called to a certain sort of obedience in this text But it's an obedience of faith right of standing still and receiving the salvation that god brings This event this passing through the red sea That is the foundation of how israel comes to understand itself They are crossing over in this event from slavery into freedom. They are crossing over from Egypt into the wilderness. They're crossing over from fear into being this new people of God. Being a Christian is imaged as that same sort of crossing over. Scripture pictures becoming a Christian as crossing over from death into life as crossing over from guilt into forgiveness, as crossing over from being strangers and aliens to being a people called by God's name. And we have to recognize that that experience requires us to surrender our pride and stand still and receive by faith God's salvation. One of the greatest enemies to us becoming and living as Christians is not our weakness Or our sin, but it is our strength We think that we should be able to fight and we should have our act together And we should work hard and pull up our bootstraps and overcome all our issues And we think we should be good people and disciplined people and people who have everything figured out And the problem is that those beliefs Can actually prevent us from surrendering in faith and trusting in god to save us Imagine what would have happened if that was israel's attitude here by the red sea They would have said all right. We're supposed to take care of this. We're strong We got this and they pull out their swords and they charge out and egypt annihilates them, right? They're just beaten They would not have seen god's salvation Too often The same thing happens for us as christians We you'll hear if you're around, you know a bible teaching church that we're saved by faith, right? Not by our goodness Of course, yes, we're saved so that we should obey and so that we have changed lives. There is that there, and that happens in this story. But we always start by experiencing God's salvation, worked by his power alone. His deliverance and the death and resurrection of Jesus is what saves us. And the reason that is so important is because that completely changes how we relate to God. That's the last thing we notice. Specifically, there are two reasons that god works this way that god saves us by his power alone There's two reasons in our text The first is that god works this way because he is glorified God is glorified And showing forth his greatness He's glorified before the egyptians in our text Several times it repeats this theme take this from 17 and 18. He says I will harden the hearts of the egyptians So that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen The egyptians will know that I am the lord when I gain glory through pharaoh his chariots and his horsemen God is glorified in egypt and he's glorified in israel Chapter 15, which we're not going to read this morning, is really a retelling of these events, but in the form of this song of praise that Israel sings to God. And here's how it starts. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Israel is drawn to glorify God. By seeing his mighty salvation. Part of the reason that salvation is God's work alone. Is because if it wasn't. We would share in the credit. And that sounds great to us. We would be happy to share in the credit. But that is also the root of all of our sin. The very first promise back in the Garden of Eden. Right? Was eat this fruit and you will be like God. Right? You'll get to share in this thing. You'll get to be up on his level. We're saved in a way that undercuts that wrong way of thinking. We don't get credit for it. God alone gets the glory. It's the whole reason we're tempted to introduce works into it. It's the reason that if you ask your neighbor, even somewhere in our hearts, we're so tempted to say that what it means to be a Christian is that you, it means you're a good person, or it means that you have good morals, right? Right? That might sound good to us, but the the reason we want to say that is because that means that as Christians, we get credit, right? We're the good people. We have the good morals. But Christianity is not that. It is a message that God's salvation has come to us by his power alone, and we simply receive it by faith. We do not get credit in that story, and that's the point. We are being restored as God works in us as Christians— But it is his work that is the foundation for our salvation. And that also means that we are secure. That's the second reason God works this way. Bringing us to the end of ourselves and saving us by his power alone. Because it means that we're secure. If you look at Israel at the end of our text. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. So the morning sun rises and they look out and they see the army of Egypt washing up on the shore. Egypt has been truly defeated, right in a way they could never have imagined even in a pitched battle Right, like this is not the kind of victory israel ever could have won in themselves And as a response, they fear the lord Because of course right when you see that kind of power displayed. There's a kind of holy fear And they put their trust in him Because seeing his power to save them. They are at last drawn to trust that he's going to take care of them one Of the greatest things wrong with our pride is that it makes us want to rely on ourselves and trust in ourselves But that very thing lays the seeds for what destroys us too It's the act of destroying ourselves It feels good to think that we christians are like good people moral people better people But at the same time That leaves you with that nagging fear of what if you aren't good enough what if you fail in some big way. Between an unknowable future and the uncertainty of our hearts, if what we're trusting in is ourselves for salvation, we are left in a place of fear. But the hope of a salvation that rests on God alone, a salvation secured for us by Jesus, is that we are delivered from our fears. All we have to do is trust And receive and pass through the waters and see the victory won. And there is a rest and a hope and a security that we can find in that. Because we have been delivered by God. The good news, friends, is that that is the salvation that we have. As we said, this story is the beginning of a theme. One piece of a story that works its way through scripture. It finds its climax in that exodus that Jesus works in his death and resurrection, where he brings us into life and defeats sin and darkness and everything that seeks to destroy us. That song that Miriam sings beside the Red Sea is joined by the song of the saints in Revelation, singing in heaven, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what we are called to do is rejoice In that salvation, find peace and hope in that. That Jesus brings us at times to the end of ourselves. But he does it because our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in God who saves us by his love and will carry us to Canaan by his strong right hand. May that be what we trust in. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks that you have saved us. You have brought us to yourself. I pray that we would be secure and find hope in your love. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.